is we are going, what we are going to do this morning is we are going to examine step one in a way that perhaps some of you have not looked at before. We're going to look at the chapter, chapter three, more about alcoholism and just to kind of review what we did last week. And since we only got one paragraph out of the way last week, we're going to review that one paragraph just for the sake of continuity purposes and sort of roll into the rest of it. The original working title of this chapter was more truth about alcoholism. And luckily, the groups in Akron disagreed with the groups in New York. And what they said to Bill Wilson was, Bill, that word truth makes us sound like experts in alcoholism when indeed we are not. And so Bill heard that and he listened to it and he took that word truth out of the title of the chapter and the chapter title today is more about alcoholism. Now, a lot of what we're gonna study this morning and a lot of what we're going to be <clears throat> talking about, sorry, a lot of what we're, that's better, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today and for the next few weeks comes from the book the, uh, by Richard Peabody called The Common Sense of Drinking. Richard Peabody was an alcoholic and in 1930, he published a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. He made a lot of statements about alcoholism that were not true at all. He, he philosophized that it was, a, it was a product of your upbringing. He philosophized that it was not a product of genetics, which it may or may not be. It doesn't really matter. Why am I a compulsive reader? Because I'm a compulsive reader. You can have twins in a family and one weighs 375 and one weighs 170. There's no rhyme or reason for it. And I've said before, there's no earthly explanation as to why I'm a compulsive overeater and there's no earthly solution for the fact that I'm a compulsive overeater. Peabody also said three things about alcoholism that were so true and so impactful that Bill Wilson's copy of, of, of the Common Sense of Drinking is in the AA archives as we sit here this morning. It was a very, very impactful book. And there were four books, four books that were primarily used in the formation of the big book. And for the sake of mentioning the other three, I will do so. Number one was the book of James from the New Testament. Number two, the varieties of religious experience by William James. Number three, the common sense of drinking by Richard Peabody. And number four, the Sermon on the Mount by, uh-oh, who wrote the Sermon on the Mount? Oh boy, out there. Emmett that, Fox. That, I'm sorry? Emmett Fox. Emmett Fox, thank you. Whoever that was, thank you. I'm not getting any younger, that's for sure. I used to roll this stuff off my tongue. I couldn't think of Emmett Fox to save my life. So thank you for saving my banking on that one. It is indeed Emmett Fox. But what we're going to be studying about today is we're going to be looking at the common sense of drinking and its influence on the big book. And there were three characteristics. There's two traits of compulsive overeating, the mental twist, 
and the physical allergy. Uh, what we're going to be looking at today are the three things that Peabody said were, were inherent in what this is. And these are the three things. Number one, this disease is permanent. Number two, the disease is progressive. And number three, the disease is fatal. If untreated, it will kill us. Now, we all know that whether we treat this or not, eventually we're gonna go the way of all things. But it's not so much a question of will we die? The question is, will we have lived? Because living in the food is not living, it's existing. It's not really any type of life. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Life in the food is a nightmare for me. I don't know how it is for someone else. I do know that for me, it is an absolute nightmare. With all those things in mind, let's take a look at page 30 and let's go to chapter three, more about alcoholism. And we're gonna open it up with a review of the paragraph that we covered last week. <laughs> Sorry. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Now, I know we're gonna go very slowly, but this is a chapter that demands very detailed observation because there's so much in here that we don't wanna miss any of it. What is a real alcoholic? At the sake of, be, for, at the sake of redundancy, I do want to point out that a real alcoholic is someone who has a physical allergy to alcohol. In other words, when they drink, they drink more than they had intended. That the drink will set them up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. And the second thing that a real alcoholic has is a mind, a mental twist that drives us irresistibly into the arms of a Reese's peanut butter cup, even though we really don't wanna be eating one, eating becomes a step up from where we are when we're not eating, so that's important. No person likes to think he is bodily, the allergy, mentally, the twist, different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. And every one of the people on the line today, I guarantee you, convinced themselves throughout most of their life that they somehow could eat like other people. Here's some of the things I went through. And, because, and the reason I went through this is because doctors and, and well-intentioned adults when I was a child would reinforce this and they would say, if you get down to a certain weight, you'll be able to eat like other people. And that's not true. I have lost enormous amounts of weight and it never made my disease go away. Abstinence and weight loss do not cure the disease. They do not give me relief from the disease. The only thing that gives me relief is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. There will never be a point and we're gonna illustrate that throughout this chapter. We're, we're never gonna to come to a point where we can eat, for me, I'm just talking about me, cake, cookies, candies, pizza, whatever that may be. I can't do it today. I couldn't do it 30 years ago. I couldn't do it 60 years ago. 
and I won't be able to do it at any point during my life. It is not something I can do. And it's with God's help, by God's grace, that I'm able to say today that I have over 21 years of release from my desire to do so. And I have lost a little over 500 pounds and I'm very happy in my release, very happy. The idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Now, that sentence is packed with information. Let's take a look at it. The idea, this idea that I have in my head that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking. When I controlled my eating, and I had people in my environment, I bet you do too, I bet you did too. I had people in my environment that scared me and they scared me because they got on me about my eating in such a way so as to make me extremely uncomfortable. They just made me very uncomfortable. So I didn't really wanna eat compulsively in front of them. I would sort of wait. So when I controlled my eating, I couldn't enjoy it. When I enjoyed my eating, in other words, it was just tonight we ride and I was just gonna eat everything that wasn't nailed down, I couldn't control it. So control and enjoy was an impossibility for me. I could control for short periods of time and I could enjoy for longer periods of time, but I couldn't do both at the same time. That was an impossible thing for me. And what is an obsession? An obsession is a thought that pushes aside all thought to the contrary. So this idea is that I can control and enjoy my eating is an obsession of mine. And I have been obsessing about that from the day I was old enough to spell cat and you know C-A-T or D-O-G of every abnormal drinker. See, normal people do not fantasize about these things because this is just not something that, that they worry about. It's not something that's a factor for them. It's sort of like my relationship with, I don't know, uh, uh, chairs, okay? I go into Wrigley Field if, if there wasn't the corona. Let's just say I go into Wrigley Field and I see 47,000 chairs in Wrigley Field. I do not have the type of relationship with chairs that makes me want to sit in each and every seat. And I don't get jealous because, oh, that guy's chair seems to be more comfortable than mine. I don't sit and think, oh my God, I wonder how that chair would be and I want to go sit on it. No, but when it comes to food, I'm going to compare and despair. When it comes to life, I'm going to compare and despair. And I'm going to want what that guy's eating. And I'm going to want what that lady's eating. And I'm going to want that. Now, see, so my relationship with chairs is very normal. My relationship with food is not normal. So I covet the food of others, but I don't covet their chair. I don't covet things like that. I just don't. Now, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. The persistence of this illusion. In one sentence, he calls it an obsession. Now, this word illusion is very, very important. What is an illusion? It is something that appears real, but it is indeed not real. And so this illusion, 
this mirage, this fantasy is something that I'm pursuing to the gates of insanity or death. And I lived in insanity. And you've heard me talk about this before. We're going to talk a lot more about this in chapter four, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it right now. The second step, and this is one of the reasons I believe that the big book was divinely inspired. This book is one of a couple of books that was, in my opinion, just my opinion, doesn't, doesn't, I, I didn't see it happening. I don't know. I believe that this book was divinely inspired and that it was written by a power greater than human power. And the reason that I believe it is because the book is timeless. And this book and the contents and instructions of this book have restored more addicts back to society, have repaired more families, more homes are reunited, more people are restored back to society than all other methods combined in the 5,000 year recorded history of addiction. So I believe it, but deliberately using this word insanity and the word in the second step is sanity. When I was living in the food and this, all the things I'm gonna tell you may or may not be related directly to food, but they, there is a tie-in, but I wanna share this with you. When I lived in the disease, when I lived in the insanity, the bedlam and the lunacy of this disease, I couldn't pay my bills. Now I pay my bills. When I lived in the insanity of this disease, I didn't clean myself. I do now every day, at least once a day. When I lived in the insanity, I didn't brush my teeth. Now I get compliments from the hygienist about how good my hygiene is on my teeth. When I lived in the insanity, I wear glasses, see? I, I've been wearing glasses for decades. I make regular appointments with the optometrist. When I lived in the insanity of this disease, I wasn't gonna go spend hundreds of dollars on glasses because I needed those hundreds of dollars to buy, to buy Chips Ahoy, to buy Oreo cookies, to buy stuff that was killing me, absolutely killing me. It was death on the installment plan. I would spend money that I didn't really wanna spend. I would spend money that I really didn't have to eat food that was killing me. So it was like the opposite of progressing through my life. I was emasculated by this disease physically. I was emasculated by this disease emotionally from age 12 on. And so I kept eating and eating and eating and fantasizing about the day when I could be thin, fantasizing about the day when I would weigh less. And I would often fantasize, now this is the part that shows how insane my disease is and how I am. I would often fantasize about being thin and going out with girls and having a normal life while I was eating pizza, while I was eating Oreo cookies, I'd have food in my mouth and fantasizing about what life's going to be once I get thin. Now, you may have another word for that kind of thinking. You may have another word for that kind of behavior. But to me, this is plain insanity. And that's why I think it's so wonderful and miraculous and God-given that the wording of the second step is not 
came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety because life is so much more than sobriety. The wording is not came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence because there's so much more to life than abstinence. The wording is came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I have good credit now. There were banks in Chicago that probably wouldn't have given me a $20 bill cash for a 10 and two fives because I had horrible, horrible alcoholic credit. I wrote bad checks. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I lived in filth. My home was filthy. My home was absolutely reflective of the bedlam and the lunacy, the insanity of how I was thinking and how I was living. And I can't see all of you, I, I, I don't have the time to sit and scroll through here, but when I see your fresh faces and I see the way you live and I see oftentimes your eyes, it's very easy for me to tell who's in recovery. Their eyes are different, their faces are different, they're ready to face the world. They, they have a different look to their face. It's almost like lights on, lights off. It's that kind of thing. I don't wanna sound judgmental, but what I wanna tell you is the people that are living in the recovery, it is quite easy to tell visually often, not always, but often who is doing the deal because they appear to be different. It's just a different appearance. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. My mother died exactly this date, July 25th, in 1976. That's 44 years ago, right? 44 years, am I right? 44 years ago today, my mother passed away, July 25th, 1976. So 24 and 20 is 44. My mother pursued this to the gates of death. My mother was a compulsive overeater. She weighed almost 300 pounds. She never could put the food down. She was a sneak eater. She was a secret eater. She would not, could not eat in front of you. She would wait us out. And when we would go to sleep, she would go in there. Now, my mother was a hundred unit a day diabetic, 100 units a day of insulin diabetes. And she would go in and clean out a whole pie or a whole cake or massive, massive quantities of food, but she would never allow somebody to see her eating most of the time. But she pursued it and I pursued it to the gates of insanity. And I will tell you this, when it comes to certain aspects of my life, like physical intimacy with a woman or different aches and pains that I may have, I pay a price today in, in 2020. I pay a price today for the uh, Oreo cookies that I ate in 1966. I pay a price today for the Oreo cookies or the, the Chips Ahoy or the Captain Crunch that I ate in 1971 when I was a junior at Mather High School in Chicago. And I was, I was, what was I, 17 years old or something like that. But the bottom line is I pay a price. And the price that I pay is very, very high. And I don't wanna pay it. And I hope, 
I hope one day we will come to a point where we can get more and more children or teenagers or 20-somethings in the doors of OA so that we can help them. It's just so hard to reach them. And quite frankly, they haven't suffered enough yet. And that's the major reason why it's so hard to reach them. But I pray, God, give us the grace, give us the direction so that we can reach younger people. The average age of a member of OA today is 55. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could reach people at an earlier age and save them from the hell and save them from the degradation that all of us have gone through? Whether we be compulsive overeaters that eat too much or for the sake of including everybody, I just, you know, I like to do this because I think it's important. There are people on this line right now that are not compulsive overeaters to the point where they would get obese. They are compulsive overeaters, yes, very definitely, but they are anorexics. They get that high from not eating, or they are bulimics, and there's three types of bulimia primarily. The first type of bulimia is a type of bulimia called regurgitation bulimia. They will eat massive quantities of food, and then they will vomit that food back up. The second type of bulimia is what's called laxative bulimia, where they will eat massive quantities of food and then they will take uh, laxatives and they will expel the food from their system that way, rectally. And then the third type of bulimia is a thing called exercise bulimia. They'll eat massive quantities of food and then what they'll do very simply is they will exercise for seven, eight, nine hours at a time and they will do irreparable damage to their joints and their, their tendons and their ligaments and their muscles. This is, these are all very serious aspects of our disease and they all need to be represented because they are all a part of us and we are stronger because they are with us. We don't want them not to be with us. We always wanna make sure that they feel welcome here because this is as much their program as it is the, the obese person's program. We're all together. Let's continue with the second paragraph here. And this is the one we never got to last week. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. Now this sentence, we, had to, we learned that we had to fully concede to ourselves that we were alcoholics. Where I was years ago, was I believed what people told me outside of OA. Once you get to a certain point, you'll be able to eat normally. Once you get to a certain point, you can have a little of this or a little of that. There was someone that came on the line before we started and they were talking about being at a birthday party yesterday. I hope they were social distancing because we don't want you to get sick. But they were talking about being at a birthday party yesterday and someone was trying to talk them into having some cake. Now that was never a good reason for me to have cake, but it was a damn good excuse. After all, Fred is telling me I can have cake once in a while at a birthday party. No, I can't, but he can. I can't eat cake because that cake is going to trigger my physical allergy. And we have commercials on television. We have psychologists who aid the people that make those commercials. Not that psychology is bad, I endorse psychology, psychiatry, we have motivational psychiatrists, motivational psychologists who teach these people that how to make commercials that will motivate me into buying their product. 
and sometimes their product is a diet center and sometimes their product is a surgery that you know they want me to have but i have to fully concede to my innermost self that i am an alcoholic and if i do that then i shouldn't have very much trouble convincing myself for the need to do the rest of the steps and every once in a while you'll hear somebody on the line and they're struggling with this step or they're struggling with that step and they may be but where it really comes down and if you're a sponsor pay attention to this because this will make you a better sponsor where we often stumble in sponsorship is we don't make sure and don't reinforce in our sponsees the necessity not the anything less than that the prerequisite if you will of understanding that at no time in my life am I going to be a normal eater even though for long periods of time I may eat normally I'm going to say that again because I want it repeated I am never going to be a normal eater even though there may be many years where I eat normally and so I have to concede to my innermost self concede means to surrender concede means to give up concede means to admit defeat to admit to the truth of the situation even though i've resisted it there's an old expression alcoholics don't get drunk being wrong they get drunk defending the fact that they're wrong and defending their error their, their erroneous conclusions that's very important I have to concede to my innermost self that I am a compulsive overeater. Now, when we were doing the doctor's opinion, I said something, and I want to say it again. The depth at which we accept this sentence, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were compulsive overeaters. The depth at which I accept this will mark the urgency that I will approach the rest of the 11 steps. Is that important enough to remember? I hope it is. The depth at which I accept that I'm a compulsive overeater will mark the urgency with which I will approach the rest of the 11 steps. And where I see people struggling and relapsing constantly, you get people on the line in vision or in, in meetings, they identify themselves as as uh, chronic relapsers, they will identify themselves such as, as, as that. Well, one of the reasons that they're doing that is they like, they like that. But number two, you also have a lot of people who really never conceded to themselves that they were compulsive overeaters. Once I concede that fact, there should be no doubt that I have to follow these instructions. It's my battle against that idea that will keep me in hell. So this is something that is very, very important for me to remember. Again, I know we're going slowly, but these sentences are packed. I mean packed with information that is vital to my life and death. Very vital. This is a chapter that, this is the last chapter that we're gonna be doing step one. They wanted to make it a good one. The delusion, see he's already used illusion, he's used obsession, now he's gonna say the delusion. What's a delusion? Someone who's psychotic delusional, they're not living in the world that we see. 
They're living in an alternative reality. A delusion is an idea or thought or perception that is not grounded in reality. The delusion is a thought, a perception, and an I or idea that is not grounded in reality. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Not destroyed, not avoided, nothing short of smashed. No, I'm not a normal person. No, I can't have birthday cake at a birthday. No, I don't have a lot of willpower. No, I don't. God has the power. I let his will take over. But this delusion that somehow, some, someday, I will be able to eat like other people has to be smashed. Remember in the doctor's opinion, he says that all other methods failed. Remember in the doctor's opinion, he says, as far as we know, alcoholics can never safely drink. Remember that? Remember in Bill's story, every single time he would have these periods of sobriety or dry drunkenness. He wasn't sober, he was dry. He was dry because he was on a diet. When he picked up a drink, he wasn't right, right back where he was. It had progressed, it was worse. I was pounding on the bar asking myself how it happened, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. So we see how this is repeated. It's not important because it's repeated. It's repeated because it's important. When the big book tells me things many times, and that's called spiraling the information. I used to date a teacher. She taught me that. But when, a, when the big book spirals the information by giving it to me a bunch of times, I better pay attention because it's very, very important. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. One other thought before we leave this sentence. When you see from December 26th to about January 30th, you see these advertisements for uh, all these commercial weight loss places and the gyms, what are they going to tell you? Because they know you want to hear it. When you lose your weight, you're going to be able to eat like other people. And they're going to show you a pizza that's roughly the size of this notepad. This is a sticky notepad. And the pizza is roughly this size. If any of us could eat pizza this size and stop, we wouldn't be here this morning. We'd be out doing whatever we were doing. I can't eat pizza that looks like this. I, can't, I eat pizza that looks like Venus or Mars or Jupiter. I can't eat, you know, I, I can't do that. And they may show me, you know, pictures of me horseback riding with Marie Osmond or, you know, jogging with Valerie Bertinelli. And that's great. That's fantastic. And I, I, I love that. But I can't eat like a normal person. I am not a normal person. I never will be a normal person. And the idea that somehow, someday I will be has to be smashed. Again, I know we're going very slow, but this is vital information. Sponsors, make sure that if you introduce this to your people in Chapter 3, that you, you make sure that they get this. This is very, very important.
We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. Why can't I control my drinking? Because of the physical allergy. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. I have 21 years of some of the most blissful, beautiful abstinence you've ever seen in your life. I sometimes look back and can't believe it myself. I could not have brought this about. And I sometimes marvel at God's work. But when I see this sentence, we know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. There are times when I, in my mind, will smell something because I go to the grocery store, you know, I, I have to go to the grocery store like anyone else. And I live off of Resort Row. And what is Resort Row? It's an area of Scottsdale. Scottsdale is a very touristy kind of place. You name a restaurant, you name a cuisine, you name a fast food. It's here within five minutes of where I live. I live uh, two blocks from Scottsdale Road, which is Resort Row from about Camelback, to about Shea, which is where I live off of. It's one hotel, one resort, one restaurant, one whatever after the other. And I will smell something sometimes. I'll smell Italian or I'll smell whatever I smell. And there is a thought that goes in my head, oh, I'd like to have that. I'm not responsible for my first thought. I'm responsible for my first action. I'm responsible for my second thought. And when I get that first thought, I laugh at myself because I know very well that if I were to act on that I would be dead within a very short period of time. Somebody's unmuted, guys, blowing their nose. Okay, so now we have this. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Let's take, for example, the man who weighs 250 pounds, 270, whatever it is. Let's just take a man who weighs 250. The man weighs 250, and one man is, has lost 25 pounds to get to the 250. Another man at one time weighed 217. He had dieted down successfully to 217, 220, just for the sake of round numbers. Now he weighs 250 again. That is pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. When you have looked at yourself and you are looking at yourself and thinking to yourself, how did this happen? How did I let this happen? What the heck is wrong with me? And you're disgusted by yourself. There are very few feelings in life, up to and including getting your butt kicked. There are very few feelings in life that are as demoralizing and as pitiful and incomprehensible as that feeling. It is a feeling of defeat. It is a feeling of shame. It is a feeling of embarrassment. And the and seeing people when I've been down in weight, and then you see them again, and you're heavier than you've ever been in your life. And you know some of them are going to say something to you. Some of them may not say something to you. They all know it. They all look at me, and they know Harlan has gained weight again. 
and I've sworn to God oaths that I'm not going to eat this and this, and they're catching me eating it. They're seeing me eating it. They're seeing my car coming out of the fast food restaurant. They're seeing me carrying a bag that I should not be carrying of food. They know that this is something that is not okay. There's very few feelings as horrible as that feeling. It's a horrible shame to that feeling. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics are of our type are in the grips of a progressive illness. Now, what does progressive mean? It means it gets worse over time, never better. It is progressively worse. You will never see an addicted person with no outside, you know, no spiritual work being done. You will never see an addicted person getting better over time. They may go through periods where they're dieting. They may go through periods where they're dry. They may go through periods where they're not using drugs or whatever they're doing, sex addicts, love addicts. But eventually what's going to happen is the addiction is going to take over. And as those emotions build up within the addict, eating or drugging or drinking or what have you is going to seem like a step up from where they are. So the disease is progressive. The disease is permanent and the disease is fatal. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Think back through your own life. Think back through your own experiences. The weight problems you had when you were seven, or the weight problems, some of you are adult onset, so you maybe when you were seven, you didn't have a weight problem. I certainly did. But let's take a look at some of the adult onsets. Maybe when you were 20, you were struggling a little bit, 25. Compare that to the way you're struggling at 50. Compare that to the way you're struggling at 60, and it's a completely different animal. You could sort of get things under more control when you were much younger, but now it's just, it's just be, the horse is out of the gate. We are like men and who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. And so what we have to do again and again is look at what the book is telling me. Why is it repeating the same idea with different twists to it? Because the book is trying to show me that this disease is permanent. It, it, it talks about my inability to control this. It talks about my inability to be able to enjoy and control my eating. And here are examples that the disease is permanent and progressive. I'm like a man who have lost my legs I will never grow new ones. I'd have to become a reptile for that. And since I'm a mammal, it's not likely to happen. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men, including recovery, including the 12 steps. You could work these steps as I have over many, many years, over decades. You can work these steps until you're, 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 your fingers are bleeding or whatever. It's not going to cure you. It's going to give you temporary relief. Yes, no question that it's going to give you temporary relief. But it is not going to be a cure for compulsive overeating. It is not going to be something that you are going to be able to do and then be immune 
to the physical allergy or immune and or immune to the twist of the mind. This is very, very important. And what you see in OA today is the same thing that you saw in OA 41 years ago when I first came in. What is it that you see? You see people, not all of them, obviously, thank God, thank God. You see people who kind of float out the top. They kind of float out the top. You used to see them in five, six meetings a week. You used to see how they were working with other people. You used to see how they were taking their 10 steps so seriously. They were doing their 11 step. They were doing their work. They were active in service. They were doing whatever it is they needed to do. And then they cut back a little here and they cut back a little here there. And now they're going to one meeting a week. And now you haven't seen them for months and months and months. I'll guarantee you when you see those people, they're not going to strike you as having done better. They're going to strike you as having done much, much worse. You know what I've never heard from anybody that I've met on the street? Forget about in a meeting. I meet them on the street and I haven't seen them for a long time. Man, am I glad I stopped going to those meetings. I'm doing great. My life is together. Everything's fantastic. I have a great life. I've never run into that person unless they're completely crazy. You look at them and you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their girth. You can see it in the things that you're looking at in their life that they have not done well. But yet you see this all the time. We sort of float out the top. And none of us are immune from that, including me. I could float out the top one day too. That's why we want to emphasize there's no superstars here. There's no, nobody on a pedestal here. We don't want to put anybody on any type of pedestal. We don't want to put anybody whatever, you know, up above. We are all compulsive overeaters. And we need this program more today than we did yesterday. When I was a kid, not a child, but when I was a teenager, there was a song on the radio and it wasn't a particularly great song, but it, it's apropos for this. It was a song, um, I think it was Spiral Staircase. But anyway, it says, I love you more today than yesterday. I won't try to sing. I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to chase you guys all the way here. But the, the song, the lyric of the song is, I love you more today than yesterday and not as much as tomorrow. And that's the type of attitude that I try my best to take with program. God, I need you more today than yesterday, but not as much as I'm gonna need you tomorrow. Because every time I wake up in the morning, there's three things that have happened. If I'm lucky enough to wake up, one day there'll be a day where I, like my mother and father before me, will not wake up. I don't know when that's coming. But if I'm lucky enough to wake up tomorrow, I know three things have happened and they happen every day. Number one, I got older. I got older. And that means I'm less able to fend off the ravages of this disease. Number two, the disease progressed. It got worse, never better. And number three, when I get up tomorrow morning, things are changing. And by things changing, six months ago, six months ago, could any one of the 89 people, 90 people that are on this line, could you have told me what COVID-19 was? But I bet you can all tell me what COVID-19 is now. 
but could you have told me on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, six, seven months ago, seven months ago, could you have told me what COVID-19 was? I bet you couldn't. I bet you couldn't tell me what it was, but you can now. So things change, things change. When I woke up on New Year's Day, 2020, I didn't know what Zoom was. I thought Zoom was a noise that little boys made when they were playing with their toy cars or their toy trucks. And they would run the truck with their hand and go Zoom, Zoom, or they'd have a little airplane and they would go Zoom, Zoom. And that's what Zoom was to me. And here we are on Zoom. So these are the things that we're looking at that things change. Now, the top of page 31, we have tried every imaginable remedy. I'm going to guess that every single one of you have spent about $100,000 for your seat in Overeaters Anonymous. You join gyms. You, and I'm not knocking therapy or doctors or psychiatry. They have a place in life. They are necessary. When I needed my hips replaced and my knees replaced, I didn't go to a meeting, I went to a surgeon. When I get strep throat, I don't go to a meeting, I go to a doctor. When I, I have these facacta allergies, my God. <sighs> Anybody that thinks you can't be allergic here in the desert of Arizona is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, you can be. But you have spent $100,000 chasing acupuncture, gyms, clothes that you never were able to wear, drugs that you were taking. Some of you have spent money having the urine of pregnant women shot up your keister. Some of you have had acupuncture, you've had needles stuck in your ear, and when you feel like eating, you're supposed to pull on your ear. Some of you have had your, your jaws wired shut. Some of you have gone not only to a pay-in way, you've gone to many pay-in ways, many of these commercial weight loss places, and you've spent untold money, and you've bought pre-prepared food, and you had the food sent to your home, and you thought, well, now that I have pre-prepared food, I won't eat compulsively because they've taken the decision-making away from me, and you still augmented it with Chips Ahoy. You augmented it with, with candy. You augmented it with whatever you augmented it with. And even if you didn't, when you stopped doing that and you started eating regular food again, you could not maintain an equilibrium. You went back into the disease. There is something about the ego of a compulsive overeater, an alcoholic, a drug addict, whatever, a gambler, a love addict, a sex addict. There is something about the ego where we have to try every damn wrong answer before we'll try the right answer. I don't know what the heck that's about. I really don't know what that's about. But you have to try every damn wrong answer imaginable before you come to OA. And that's why we say it's the last house on the block. OA is the last house on the block. So it's very, very important for me to remember that as the last house on the block, these people that we're seeing coming in, they're weary, they're frustrated, they're hurting, they're often negative, 
they're often just skeptical because nothing they've ever tried worked. And we have to show them, show them, demonstrate to them by our actions that there's something different here. And it is through that identification, one compulsive overeater talking to another compulsive overeater. So in the new compulsive overeater, those feelings of difference start to break down and they will begin taking actions which they do not yet believe in. Very, very important to remember that when they come in, they are scared and skeptical, just like you were. And it is one compulsive overeater. It's very, I know I just said this, I'm gonna say it again, so please excuse me. It is one compulsive overeater talking to another compulsive overeater so that the new person's feelings of difference start breaking down and they can begin taking action, which they do not yet believe in. And that's when recovery takes place. Let's go to the top of 31. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery. Some of your diets work for a while. They all work for a while. Not some, they all work for a while. You, if you were able to stick to whatever pay and way you went to, if you were, didn't have the allergy and you didn't have the twist of the mind, those, those diets work. There's, let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with those food plans 99% of the time. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is we can't stay on it because we're different. We have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. So the little Weight Watcher lecturer or the Nutrisystems or, the, or Jenny Craig or whatever it is, I don't want to endorse them and I don't want to knock them. When they start getting up there and start telling you, oh, this and this, that's very applicable for the normal person that's in trouble with weight. It's not applicable for us because we're, we have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. These things are not going to work for us. They never have worked for us and they never will. But some of us may go out and try them again. I hope not, but maybe some of you will go out and try them again. And if you are a real compulsive overeater, the food will bring you back to our shores. In some instances, there's been brief recovery, followed always, not sometime, not followed. The adjective always has to be in there, not followed most of the time, always, with no exceptions. Not most of the time, not the majority of the time, not somewhat, it's always by a still worse relapse. Why? You know where I'm going with this because the disease is progressive. It gets worse over time. So that always is divinely inspired. It, it, it tells me that there's no exceptions. It tells me I can't get out of this alive. I may have a get out of jail free card from a monopoly set, but it's not going to get me out of this one. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. And this is one of the points that Peabody did make in his 1930 book, The Common Sense of Drinking. If I haven't said this before, I want to say it now. 
Peabody in 1936 died of his own alcoholism. He never got up to a spiritual remedy. His remedies for alcoholism included joining gyms and reading books about Abraham Lincoln and Henry Ford and Thomas Jefferson and great men and trying to emulate great men. Those were the remedies that he suggested. He suggested lifestyle changes, which we, we, we do too. He suggested all kinds of things, but he never really got around to suggesting a spiritual remedy, let alone he didn't have any steps or any mechanisms with which to achieve a spiritual awakening as the result of anything. But what we have here is science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. What are they talking about? Making a normal eater out of a compulsive overeater or a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. It cannot be done. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is the cucumber example. You can take a cucumber and you take this cucumber and you soak it in brine. What is brine? It's salt water. And you put some spices in there, dill spices and whatever kind of you know, thing you like. I like dill. And you make that cucumber into a pickle. You can make a cucumber into a pickle. Here's what you can't do. You can't make pickle out, you can't make a pickle become a cucumber. The only way to go is for the cucumber to become a pickle. There is no known way of making a pickle go back, revert to its existence as a cucumber. That, my friends, is what we are. We are pickles. We are all pickles. I know you may not want to think of yourself as a pickle, but you are. I'm a kosher dill. You can be whatever kind you like to be. But we are pickles. And as pickles, we will never, ever, under any circumstances, no matter how much abstinence we have, no matter. Harlan, you're muted. Harlan, you're muted, dear. Okay, I don't know where you lost me, but okay. Let me go back to what I was saying because this is important. You and I are pickles. And you and I are delicious pickles. I'm going to be a kosher dill. If I have to choose, I want to be a kosher dill. You be whatever kind of pickle you want. I'm going for kosher dill. No matter how many steps you work, no matter how many meetings you go to, no matter how strongly you study the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter what you do, you will never, ever, never, ever become a cucumber ever again in your life. It's not going to happen. So this idea that one day you'll revert back to being a normal eater has to And your ability to smash that idea is going to mark the urgency that you will approach the rest of these steps. Let's continue. I'm on page 31 at the top, almost the top, not quite to the top. Despite all we can say, hang on. 
It's really not quite as hot here as it's been, but it's hot enough so that I'm drinking like crazy. Despite <clears throat> all we can say, many, <clears throat> excuse me, who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. Now, let's take a look at what's at war here. We have head knowledge that we are pickles. But the ego, and if, boy, if everything resurrected as, as well as the ego, we'd live to be 10,000 years old, you know? The ego is going to try and convince me that this is not true for me. What's not true for me? That I am the exception of the rule. Somehow I am the exception of this rule and that these ideas of being a pickle may apply to the peons like you, but a guy like me who's so special and so wonderful and so fantastic, I am going to find that one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be normal. I'm going to be a cucumber again. And that is just crazy. That is just crazy. But the ego is a very, very good salesman. Some of the worst ideas I've ever had came into my head wearing the sexiest clothes because they seemed so seductive at the time that I believed them much to my own detriment. I never believed the rantings and ravings of the ego and been better off for it. I have only succumbed to the enchanting sirens on the rocks in my head. And when I say the sirens on the rocks, I mean the story of the ancient sirens who induced the sailors to smash their boats against the rocks by trying to wave them over. When I succumb to that, I have always been hurt. I have never been benefited. So you have two things at war here. The knowledge that I have a disease and that I am not gonna be like a normal eater. And then my ego, ego has three jobs. Make me right, make me different, and make me feel good right now. Make me right, make me different, and make me feel good right now. That's the job of the ego. And it's when it says, make me different, you listen to the language of people who have been in these rooms for a long time and turn their back on these rooms what a lot of them will say right to your face is, you don't understand, my case is different. And there are people that will say that right to our faces. You don't understand, my case is different. You don't understand, I'm an emotional person. You don't understand, my mom abused me. My mom used food for, for love. My, my dad would use chocolate bars for love. You know what? They used them because they worked. Nobody tried to use cocaine for to show me love, not that my parents knew what the hell cocaine even was, because it didn't, it wouldn't have worked on me. I never did cocaine. I don't know from cocaine. So do you see where we're going with this? It is vital that we understand that we still have an ego that resurrects itself beautifully, that is going to whisper in my ear. It's going to whisper here in the ear, yeah, but you're different. You're somehow better. You're somehow worse. You're different. No, I have to tell that voice in my head to shut the front door. Shut the front door voice because I'm not different. I am a compulsive overeater and I will die a compulsive overeater. And I've lived as a compulsive overeater my entire years of life. 
So let's take a look at what this says here. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. I'm going to guess that the vast majority of you on this line today, right now, the people that are listening to me either on July 25th, 2020, or if you're listening to me on a recording at some point in the future, I'm going to venture a guess. You came into OA, you left OA, you came back to OA, you left OA, and you came back at least that many times. Why? Exactly what this says. You came in and your ego started creating distance between you and the people around you. It told you you were better. It told you you didn't need this God BS. It told you that you didn't need to do an inventory. You didn't need to make amends to these people. It told you that they had hurt you more than you hurt them. So you don't have to go face them and make amends, right? I can't see you, but I'm going to assume that this is correct. I'm going to assume that this is something that's correct. Why am I going to assume that? Because I've been in these rooms for 41 freaking years. And the necessity of being here is no criterion. It is the giving, somebody's unmuted, somebody's doing something here, somebody's unmuted. And I can see a couple of people, at least one that's unmuted. Okay. This is the process of the ego whispering in your ear, oh, somehow you're different. Somehow you're above this. Somehow this ain't for you, right? If you are a compulsive overeater, you got nowhere else to go. We're the last house on the block. We're the only place that you can go and get relief from the ravages of a fatal progressive illness. We have an answer here. And it's the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. There is no other answer. Not for the true compulsive overeater, there's not. Not for the bulimic, not for the anorexic, not for the sex addict, the gambler, the cutter, not for the drug addict or the alcoholic, not for the Al-Anon, not for the codependent. There is no other answer. I know I'm missing a whole lot of you know, addiction. There is no other answer. There's no other place. So resign yourself to the fact that this is where you are, Mrs. Pickle, Mr. Pickle, Miss Pickle. You are a pickle. If anyone who is showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Yes, I, I hear that sentence. What I want to know is for how long? Yeah, some of us, I know I am, I've done it. For some of us, we've gone weeks, months, whatever, eating like a normal person. How long can we keep that up? How long are we going to be able to keep that up in the face of emotional buildup, in the face of a world that is changing every day? in the world of resentments and fears and in the world of jealousy and happiness and accomplishment and in a world that we live in today, how long are we going to be able to keep that up? Not long if you're one of us. Not long, Pickles. Not long at all. 
Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. The next paragraph is we're on page 31 if you're following along and we're in the middle of the page. Here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only, going vegan or vegetarian. Now, I don't have an opinion on veganism or vegetarianism. I think they're fine. I think they're wonderful. But they are not a guarantee of recovery. And people think, well, I don't need to go to meetings anymore. I'm going to be a vegan. Yeah, there's, you can be a vegan or a vegetarian or you can be a carnivore or whatever it is you want to be. It's not going to cure you. It's not going to give you relief. You have to work the steps. Limiting the number of drinks, limiting the number of whatever. Never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning. Drinking only at home, never having it in the house. Never drinking during business hours. Drinking only at parties. Switching from scotch to brandy. Drinking only natural wines. Agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job. Taking a trip, not taking a trip. Swearing off forever with or without a solemn oath. Taking more physical exercise. Reading inspirational books. This also comes out of the common sense of drinking. He suggests, Peabody suggests that we read inspirational books. He suggests this as a way of overcoming alcoholism. Going to health farms and sanitariums, something else he mentions in his book as well. Accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. Many of you have been in treatment. Many of you have been hospitalized. We could increase the list ad infinitum. I'm not gonna go off on a tirade about vegetarianism or going kosher or going carnivore or going keto or any of these things. These are fine things. There's nothing wrong with these things. I'm not endorsing them. I'm not condemning them. But let's keep our perspective in reality. Can those things cure me? No, they cannot. Nothing cures me. Can they give me relief? No, they cannot. But the 12 steps give me relief. And it's based on my spiritual condition. It is a condition that I have to work at every day. And you'd be amazed at how many people think to themselves, and I was one of them, if I just gave up the potato chips and I just gave up the candy and I just ate my meals, I'd be fine. That doesn't work because my meals start expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding. And what happens then is I'm eating ice cream, I'm eating whatever, potato chips or whatever, because it's a progressive disease. So we have to look at these things for the reality that God is presenting them to us. Never in my 66 years of life have I been able to eat normally over an extended period of time, no matter how desperate my desire was. I'm a guy. I saw girls. I was turned on by women. I've been turned on by women since the fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I think mean, it was fifth. I've had crushes on girls since I was in the fifth grade. I went on my first date when I was 35 years old. I never went to the makeout parties. I never went to the spin the bottle parties. I was drowning in a sea of Twinkies. I was drowning in, in a sea of, of, of chocolate ice cream. I was drowning in, in, my, in, in my life. I was drowning in every aspect of my life. I never did the things normal people do. 
and eating wasn't going to change it or help it in any way or at all. It was a sea of Twinkies. Lake Michigan, I used to fantasize that Lake Michigan was the chocolate syrup and Mackinac Island was the ice cream. Now that's a crazy fantasy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, obviously you're not from the picture a huge lake, not one that you can get across in one day, but 319 miles long, 119 miles wide, and up to 200 feet deep in certain places. That's Lake Michigan, okay? It's not like the lake that you go to when you go, you know, camping or whatever, you, where you go. That's a crazy fantasy. People don't normally fantasize like that. They just don't. They just don't. Let's continue. And this will probably be the last paragraph we'll tackle today. Bottom of 31, we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. I get people from time to time who asked me to sponsor them. 99% of the people are people who are low bottom compulsive overeaters, people who have weighed 300 or more pounds. Sometimes if a person's already been through the steps, I'll make an exception. But most of the people that I spend a lot of time with are men who have weighed over 300, over 400 pounds. But every once in a while, I will get a phone call from somebody and they're not quite sure whether or not they are compulsive overeaters. They just, honestly, they don't know. So this is what I will tell them. Whatever, what's your favorite food in the entire world? <clears throat> your favorite binge food, your, this is a food that when you think of what your favorite is, this is your favorite thing in the entire world. Go get some. Go get some. If it's ice cream, if it's whatever it is, go get some. Do it on a Friday. If it's still there by Monday, you're probably not a compulsive overeater. If it's not, call me. And that's what I say to them because a lot of, sometimes they're not sure. Get your favorite binge food, favorite thing in the world. Get a lot of it. Get, get a bunch of it. I mean, not, you know, like, a million of them, but get, get a bunch of them. Don't just get one or two, get a bunch of them. Have a couple, have a little bit. If it's ice cream, that's the easiest example, get a couple of gallons of ice cream. Get a gallon of ice cream for sure. Have a dish of ice cream. When I had a dish of ice cream, it was roughly the size of a bathtub. But I'm talking about a normal dish that you would use. Have a dish of ice cream, put the rest away. Put it back in the freezer. If it's still there on Monday, you're good to go. If it's not, call me. So these are some of the ways that people who are on the fence may be able to determine whether or not they are compulsive overeaters. Can you control the amount you eat once you start? And can you give this up now that you want to? I have a friend of mine. She is an alcoholic, absolute stone alcoholic. She will not admit to anyone that she's an alcoholic, but I've never been with her yet in my entire life where she wasn't getting drunk and very, very loud. I can always tell how drunk she is by how loud she's laughing and how loud she's yelling. 
because one of the things that inebriation does is it diminishes the capacity to hear. And that's why a lot of alcoholics get very, very loud. Well, she looked at me one time and she was drunk and she said to me, if I can't drink wine, life is just not worth living. And I, I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, well, they have a name for people like that and they're called alcoholics. And she said to me in all candor, no, I just love wine. I'm not an alcoholic. And that's why I drink wine every single day. Okay. Okay. We're going to open this up. We're, we're, we're going to leave off on page 32. I hope today was helpful.